Welcome, my name is Dan Hughes. I'm Client Portfolio Manager here at the firm. With me today is Chris Wallace, Senior Portfolio Manager, CEO and CIO at Vaughn Nelson. In addition, Chris is a Certified Public Accountant as well as a Chartered Financial Analyst. Chris has been with Vaughn Nelson since 1999. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So Chris, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about growing up. How does a guy from rural central Texas get from there uh, down to running a, a $13 billion firm? Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, some personal influencers that you had in your life? Uh, you went to Baylor as an undergrad. Um, your point from going to Baylor uh, to becoming a CPA and, and, and why you chose that route? I grew up in Waco. Uh, my family had gone to Baylor for multiple generations. My three children, fortunately, are there now. And so Baylor was less of a choice in my mind. It was just the natural next step for me. And for me growing up, the overarching thing and kind of all my mentors, I thought were you know really good at, at the concept of stewardship. And that was always important in our family growing up that you took your abilities, you honed them, you got better at them, you owned them, but you used them more for the benefit of the world around you than just for your own self-interest. And that's kind of always been a guiding principle. And for me, I knew always knew I was going to kind of go into business early on or thought I would. And in doing that, I just felt like, you know, I needed to be an accounting major. It was the language of business. It was going to be a good underlying base. I then thought I would mirror that with a law degree um, and put those two together and develop a career in business. Um, and so started with accounting. Uh, then after I got my accounting degree, went to work for uh, Coopers and Librand, and it just happened to be at the time uh, at Coopers and Librand, I moved into our healthcare regulatory unit, uh, and that was very fortunate for me because at the time uh, Hillary was Hillary Clinton was going through looking at major reforms within healthcare reimbursement and Medicare reimbursement. And it really turned the industry on its head. And it gave me a chance through my client base at the time to really look at what made certain companies successful versus other companies from the inside out. And that's been very helpful in kind of building my ability to judge and assess corporate strategies, industry structures, as well as does a company have the competitive position, the business model, and the, and the processes and internal controls to be successful. That's kind of the foundation for, for that experience. And I was having a reasonably successful career at Coopers and Libran and got an early promotion to manager and was starting to build my own book of business. And I love building businesses. I've always I've come from a very entrepreneurial family, uh, and so the idea of building something, or more importantly, only living off the value you cr create around you was important to me. So as I was building a practice within uh, within Cooper's, I happened to be you know, getting my oil changed in my truck, and I was reading about these guys graduating from these business schools. And I thought they were making a ridiculous amount of money when they graduated. And I'd never, I didn't know what an MBA was growing up where I did. Uh, but started researching the top programs and made the decision that I was going to apply to Harvard. And the only reason why I applied to Harvard was I didn't want more of a technical MBA like was offered with some of a lot of the other programs. I wanted a more general uh, management education. But more importantly, they were the only, class, only school that didn't take the GMAT. And having sat through the LSAT, having sat through the CPA exam, 
and having a, a pretty big disdain for standardized tests as far as any indication of an individual's ability, I thought I'd apply to the only school that didn't require the GMAT. And fortunately, all I had to do was fill out a few essays uh, and they you know, made a mistake and let me in. But that was a, really a pivotal experience for me uh, because I really tried to focus my time in graduate school on thinking about what it meant to buy and sell companies. Uh, I had kind of made the decision at the time I had flirted with going back to med school um, and made the decision uh, not to pursue that. So when I chose to go back to graduate school, I really knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to buy and sell companies. And I spent the two years there really digging in, not into valuation. You know, a monkey can value a company, and that's not the hard part. It's really building out the philosophy. It's understanding the capital markets and the structures of the economy. Um, and I'd started in 96, and I graduated in 98. And I didn't know what we were at the end of in 98 and into 99, but I felt like uh, we'd had a tailwind for a number of years, and we were due for some fairly significant challenges. Um, I really didn't like the private equity model. It is a great model uh, for making money, but as a pure investor, uh, a lot of the private equity opportunities that presented themselves to me at the time were very industry-focused, and I just didn't like being forced to invest in an industry at a specific period of time because uh, a lot of times you may be catching the downside of the cycle and that's going to dictate your career experience. And as soon as you get the first fund to work, you got to get to raise in on the next fund. And it became more about kind of managing um, uh, that business rather than investing. And more importantly, the way I looked at the world and the way I felt like we were getting ready to hit a, a kind of a multi-generational reset and we were going to go through a very significant and challenging bear market, I was willing to trade off the control you have in private equity for the liquidity you have in public equities and really made the decision um, to try to pursue a career investing in the public securities market. Yeah, and, that's, and I think that's a really clean transition to talk about you know, that, that jump, and then pretty shortly after you get out of HBS, uh, you find yourself here at Vaughn Nelson. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the firm, its focus back in 1999, and bring that up to speed a little bit more toward what we're focusing here uh, sure. in, in 2017? Yeah, the way I would describe it in 99 is, you know, I kind of pictured it as a 30-year-old startup. Uh, and I think what the firm was good at was really looking out into the future and saying what's going to be relevant, uh, you know, five and 10 years from now. And the reason I say that is, uh, some of the original founders had looked out in the early 90s and said, look, technology is going to be a disproportionate share of the economy, um, and you're just not getting enough exposure through traditional equity funds, so let's have a technology-specific fund, which obviously you know, was timed really well and was, was really successful in the late 90s. And so you know, I came in with the premise that uh, when you look at the opportunity set in front of us, I think what had been successful for really the last 15 or 20 years was going to come to an end uh, and really felt like that both changes within the distribution being your local high net worth business was going to be moving to the brokers where it should. Brokers were going to slowly morph more into consultants instead of stock selectors. Uh, but more importantly, the style box world was going to go away. And the reason I felt like it was going to go away was I really think a large part of the economic growth 
not just from the mid 80s, but more importantly, from the mid 90s, when you develop the uh, asset back market and the securitization markets. And you really went on kind of this money creation exercise that took the power and the liquidity and the currency creation away from the central banks and, and moved it to the shadow banking system. You created a system where uh, it was just a mean reverting investment world where everything went up and to the right. And it was just a question of what factors had been overbought or underbought. And they would mean revert and it would all work out in the end. And you could develop these nice style boxes and we could distinguish and call some things value and some things growth. And I, you know, my own personal view is that's all BS. You know, there's no such thing as growth companies or value companies. There's just undervalued securities. So, th so this, this sounds an awful lot like the beginnings of the Von Nelson philosophy. And uh, there's a few things that we explicitly do that, that are a bit different here at Von Nelson. Uh, the first being is, is we have a targeted return objective. That's a 50% return over a three-year time horizon uh, for all of our equity portfolios. Uh, furthermore, we, uh, we run fairly concentrated strategies high conviction strategies, fairly low turnover strategies uh, with very high active share. Um, and so as, as you began to develop that, that line of thinking, right, and, and you began to, to look at that philosophy, Chris, um, can you talk a little bit about why in today's world that specifically uh, is particularly important uh, for an investor? Sure. Uh, and my premise all along has been is if you get away from looking at the world through a style box lens and if you get away from looking at the world um, from a relative valuation standpoint, and you just focus on making money, uh, and you focus on making money regardless of what's going on in the world, uh, then you can build a pretty robust investment philosophy and process. And so that's what we did. We, we put together the same philosophy and process that we use today is, is exactly the same that we began with in 99. And the idea simply being, we need to make money. There are real liabilities that need to be defeased, and we need to build a philosophy and process that is repeatable uh, regardless of the nature of the environment we're in. And I think, you know, knock on wood, we've been successful and able, and able to do that. And I think it's going to be more important going forward. And the reason I say that is I think investors have zero appreciation for how much quantitative easing has supported asset prices for the last seven years. When you look at your indices and you look and see that they've been compounding at mid-teens rates and you look at the relationship to uh, the velocity of money compared to the S&P 500, which had a super high R square up until 09 and then completely disconnected after that, you're going to discover very quickly that it was QE that has been able to sustain risk asset prices. And we are going through right now, I think, a fairly seismic shift uh, where there's going to be much less reliance on QE because of its distortive impacts and now net negative impacts. And so it is going to take this kind of uh, full approach focused on absolute returns to continue to drive attractive uh, uh, overall returns kind of peak to peak and trough to trough. And fortunately, what creates value hasn't changed. It never will change. 
And so it just takes, you know, consistent analysis and a thoughtful process to capture those opportunities. Uh, and we're going to see a pretty big pickup in volatility. I think it starts happening in 17 for sure. So, so where does this stand for you today? Uh, how achievable is that investment objective relative to where it's been in the first 17 years of, of managing the strategy? Uh, more difficult, less difficult, fairly similar. And uh, does the world of fixed income play into the way people should be thinking about investing, right? As, as there yeah. are uh, lower or potentially, uh, potentially um, more difficult uh, fixed income returns as it relates to the overall market. How should people be viewing these equities today, yeah, particularly I, a strategy like what, what you're running? Uh, I think we're at a very unique period in time since 2000. Uh, I think you can go back and look from the prior peak of 06 to today and just look at your active managers and see who added value. Because we've seen deflationary environments. We've seen credit crises over that time. We've seen reflationary environments. Uh, and we've seen fairly significant shifts both in currencies and elsewhere. Um, and by doing so and finding those managers that have been able to outperform fairly consistently through those time periods, uh, you've actually discovered and have, have walked in upon uh, a philosophy and process that's able to capture value. Uh, why that's important today is I don't think anything's changed as far as our ability to capture alpha. Uh, and the amount of alpha we can capture has not changed one iota. I think what has changed is going to be the base return and the broad risk asset markets. Um, look, we're, we're going to shift from a monetary-led recovery uh, to a one built around fiscal policy, pro-growth fiscal policy, uh, shifts in global trade, shifts in currency regimes. And what I mean by that is how we fund trade. And that's going to have fairly significant implications for sectors and for companies. And if you're not doing the work and if you're not aware of where that's going to happen, uh, you're just not going to make as much money. Uh, if you think about QE in its simplest form, when, when central banks print money, it goes one or two places. It either goes into the general economy through economic activity via the banking system, i.e. a new loan, or it stays in the banking system because it's not borrowed and therefore it gets pushed through asset prices. And from 09 until uh, even today, via foreign central banks still utilizing QE, uh, it's caused a rise in all risk assets. And that we think that's shifting right now. Uh, and we think there's still fairly significant, sizable uh, risks that exist around the world. It just happens to be the U.S. is in fairly good shape. So, so you, you touch on this shift that we're seeing here in the U.S. from monetary policy to fiscal policy. And I think this is a, is a clean transition to where the firm stakes itself as a, as a fundamental bottom-up investor. Sure. Um, but how much does macro influence your perspective how much do you take it into consideration as you're evaluating security-specific sectors and underlying securities that sit inside of it? Yeah, and this is what I ask myself um, anytime I'm looking at a company is, well, what's the end market look like? Uh, what's happening with that end market? Is it growing or is it shrinking? Um, is it, uh, has it been, the demand been exacerbated by uh, pro-regulatory changes or easy money uh, and oftentimes those things tie back to a macro fundamental. Uh, for example, uh, you know, the, the currency trends and the monetization 
of a lot of the commodities from, that drove and f- kind of financed the secular boom in commodities could be tied back to changes in the dollar and the way the dollar was expanding its role in global trade. Um, and understanding that, you could look at and understand, hey, do I want to own E&P assets? Do I want to own certain industrial assets? And when is that going to end? Because that's a cycle. Uh, today, uh, something much less subtle, but I think is more macro-oriented, is the potential changes with the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, let's face it, uh, regulatory changes and whether we choose to fund entitlements going forward is going to have a greater impact on health care than the underlying demographic tailwinds. And that's just a fact of life. So when you're doing individual company analysis, you have to understand if there's been macro factors at work or if macro factors are going to shift and impair or hurt that company, uh, just so you can understand and factor it into your bottom-up analysis. Uh, and what I like to say is, you know, before you choose what you should pay for an app for a company, you better decide if you want to own that business first, because the minute you buy that stock, you own that business. And so in that sense, macro comes into play as you're trying to evaluate whether you want to own that business. And then the only other way it really comes into play, and I think this is important from a portfolio construction standpoint, is, look, I could go out and I could do work on, you know, 60 underlying businesses and think they're all great and they look really interesting. Uh, But that doesn't mean they should all be in the portfolio. You have to understand your factor exposures and by uh, and as a complement to that, understand where macro risk can influence those factors, be it a dollar exposure, uh, be it a commodity exposure, interest rates, uh, where we are in the credit cycle. And the reason being is ultimately all these individual securities roll up into your portfolio. And the way I think about a portfolio is a single kind of security. Um, and I want to make sure I'm not introducing inadvertently too much macro risk into the portfolio where there may be some binary outcomes. Uh, At the end of the day, if there's a binary outcome in the macro world, chances are we're not going to get a competitive edge on it. And so rather than uh, unintentionally introduce it to the portfolio or build excessive exposure to it, uh, we just try to isolate it, identify it, and get it out of the portfolio. Let, let's use that ACA example, right? So yeah. you think about what's what's going on here, and there is you know a, a fairly good visibility and a fairly long runway before something is going to happen. Um, but there is an overweight to healthcare uh, in the portfolios here at Vaughn Nelson. Uh, let's talk about how you're taking into consideration the names uh, in healthcare in general, names that potentially have repercussions as they're associated or tied to uh, an ACA repeal, and how do you think about that in positioning the portfolios here at the firm? When I look at healthcare specifically, I think what we want to focus on are companies that are, what I'd say, adding value to the healthcare supply chain. And what I mean by that is they're taking costs out. Um, and if they can provide services cheaper, for an example, uh, if you look at ambulatory surgery centers or clearly have an advantage over treating uh, patients in, in a hospital setting, a more acute care setting where it's more expensive, that we're seeing the volume shifts go there. Uh, and there's been very little impact on those business models from the ACA and its adoption or Medicaid expansion. And so while certainly um, you know, throwing 20 million people off the insured rolls 
would be a net negative for healthcare in general, it really wouldn't have a meaningful impact on those business models. But if you look at price action for those securities, you would think it's, you know, all of their success and their organic growth has been tied to the implementation and adoption of the Affordable Care Act. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, and then other areas we, where you'd have exposure is really tied to uh, research and development for uh, new pharmaceuticals and biologics. Uh, there's a lot of outsourcing there as well. And it's driven, again, by an industry that wants to reduce the cost of drug development. Um, and again, that, that should create tailwinds for us. And then I also like exposure where if we're, on a, uh, if we're tied to kind of equipments and supplies, that there's an export element to it. Because I do think uh, we're very fortunate in the United States to have reasonably positive demographics. Uh, and so our economy is going to be fine. I'm a little concerned about where assets are priced today, but our underlying economic growth is going to be fine. You really can't say that for the rest of the developed and most of the developing world. So I think when I look at emerging markets, one thing we will be able to export is going to be healthcare equipment and 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 technologies, uh, and that you know I think they're going to you know buy more hips and crutches and wheelchairs that, than they are going to be uh, buying automobiles or televisions from us. Thank you, Chris. We certainly appreciate your time today. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Chris Wallace as of January 18, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Provided by NGAM Distribution LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. Compliance Code 17151491, Job Pod 78A, 0217. Expires 22818.